0: We didn't allow ourselves to get caught up in all the unknowns and the what ifs and the fear of the future, but that we really grounded ourselves in living life over cancer.
1: Hey guys, welcome back to the show. This is MILF Podcast, the show where we talk about motherhood, entrepreneurship, sexuality, and everything in between. I'm Jennifer Tracy, your host. And as we just barrel towards the end of January now, here on episode 84 of MILF Podcast, I'm feeling pretty great. How are you guys feeling? Are you feeling still the the energized New Year excitement? I know I am. I really am. I've had a, I've had a fantabulous new year and start to the new year and it just really hit the ground running and that felt really good going to New York, getting signed with my literary agent, whom I just adore and, um, you know, getting to bring this to you guys, including, I can't wait to tell you about this. Um, I I told you a little bit about them last week, but so this company that I want to just give a shout out to and, and tell you how amazing it is and they're actually giving us a beautiful discount. So this is Loom is a place in Los Angeles where they have classes. Their social handle is this is Loom. Their website is thisisloom.com. They're here in LA. Um so if you're in LA, I, I highly recommend it. What it is is this really cool community for people who just want to learn about their bodies and sexuality and parenting. And some of their most popular classes are, and they're just fun. Like they're just fun. They're not like too serious. For example, some of their most popular classes are one that's called Prepped, a birth class that doesn't suck. That's in the parenthetical of the title, Mother and Baby, Like Mommy and Me, But Better. KIN, Family Planning for LGBTQIA folks, and Roadmap, Your Sex Life in Period Demystified. They have hosted events with everyone from Baby Whisperer, Dr. Harvey Karp, to sex expert Dr. Emily, from Sex with Emily, to comedian Jenny Slate. And they also have, um, if you can't make it there, they have panels available to stream on demand. And the panels range from sex to postpartum issues. It's an incredible company. I love what they're doing, and I really wanted to highlight them for you. They have also offered us very generously a discount code if you go online, or if you go in, you just mention MILF20, and you get a 20% discount. So please check them out. This is Thisisloom.com. And I just feel like in this age of... It's great to have all the digital resources we need, but it's so nice to come together and just be together in person, you know, just nothing it can substitute for that. And when I was in New York, I really felt that so deeply. Like that's why I actually went to New York to do this, to take those meetings and meet people. And even just walking around the city, like I hadn't been to New York in three years and I love New York. Um, I really love it. And I miss living in a walkable city. I really do. And I have to tell you guys this. So, you know, I've, and I've mentioned this like every fall and kind of into the holidays, I always gain some weight because I just let myself. I mean, I don't really watch what I eat very much. I, I don't like, I'm not a dieter and I don't, I just kind of, I try to gravitate towards healthier foods. But particularly during the holiday season, I just kind of let it all go <laughs> because there's so much yummy food and there's gatherings and like, I want to, I want to enjoy that. So, and I don't drink. So there's that, you know, like I'm not taking in those calories. Not that I count calories. I really don't. I haven't weighed myself in a long time. I don't know. In fact, I went for my gynecological, is that the right word? My gynecology, gynecological. I think that was proper um, checkup and they weighed me and I was like, that's wrong. I don't weigh that much. <laughs> because I just was like, you know, and then I kind of was upset about it for a minute. And then I was like, whatever, who knows if that scales right. Or even if it is like, it's fine. Like my pants fit. And then when they stop fitting you'll just get a bigger size, it's all good. (laughs) It's all good. So, um, as I was saying, (laughs) I was in the shower in my hotel room in New York and I just was like, Oh my God, my butt's shrunk. Like, in a fabulous way. (laughs) It was just from the walking, you know, and I just thought, Oh yeah, God, I forgot how good that is. It's just so good. And I just love not only just the physical exercise, but like the pace, you know, of like, of seeing the shops and, and looking people in the eyes and just I don't know. There's something... I really miss that. I really, really miss that. So I thoroughly enjoyed my time in New York. Just absolutely loved it. And I will be back very soon. So the other company I wanted to give a shout out to, and and just so you know, like I've been doing this just because I reached out to these companies that are doing such amazing things and and really making a difference in the world and empowering women and helping women to get education, to get products that are, you know, good for them, that are sustainable, all these things, and just give them a little plug in exchange for giving you guys a little discount. So that's what this is. And this company is called Soulku, S-O-U-L-K-U, and it is this beautiful company that this group of women started in North Carolina. And they, it's these jewels, these um, gemstones that they make into jewelry, necklaces and earrings and bracelets, these beautiful things. you can go, you find them on soulcoo.com. And it's all made by mothers in their homes so that they can be with their kids, make beautiful jewelry and make money. And I really have my eye on this black tourmaline necklace. I mean, it's just, (laughs) they have so many beautiful things and they're really affordable gifts and they're giving us a 15% discount. So if you go on and use the code MILF15, you get 15% off. So there's that and enjoy, take a peek at it. So without further ado, today's guest is Laura McGregor. Laura reached out to me a couple months ago and told me her story and I couldn't get a hold of her fast enough to get a recording on the books. I was just blown away by this woman. Lara was diagnosed with breast cancer and she fought that cancer and she got into remission and then the cancer came back. But within the space of the first treatment of the first cancer, she began this beautiful organization called Hope Scarves. You may remember that in December, my Give Initiative and my my highlight for that month was her organization, hopescarves.org. So she's in the interview is going to tell you all about how that came to be and just what a beautiful organization it is as it continues to grow and evolve. And I just, I'm so inspired by this woman, so inspired by her spirit, by her love for her family and her community. And I just, I can't wait for you to listen to this episode. So please enjoy my conversation with Laura. Hi, Laura. Hello. Thanks so much for being on the show. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Oh, absolutely. So you, your story is so fascinating and layered and brilliant, and I'm so grateful that that you reached out. And I kind of just want to start from the beginning of this section of your story of your life? Because, you know, obviously we could start from the very beginning, but so you were, how old were you and how old were your kids when this whole thing started happening? I was
0: 30 years old and seven months pregnant when I was first diagnosed with breast cancer and I had a two-year-old son as well.
1: Yeah. That must have been incredibly overwhelming.
0: Yeah. You know, I think a cancer diagnosis is overwhelming for anyone. I mean, hearing those words, you have cancer rocks your world. Certainly as a young, healthy woman who is like, you know, in the middle of, you know, at kind of the top of my career, you know, healthy, excited to welcome our second child, you know, no family history I mean cancer wasn't even at all on my radar, and sure. so it you know it really came as quite a shock when we heard those those words and you know, I had just gone in for my seven month checkup just as we do you know I had a long list for my oncologist or my o b about you know questions pregnancy changes and things like that, and almost as an afterthought, I mentioned some discomfort in my breast and assumed it was just pregnancy changes, but he was immediately suspicious and sent me that same day for a biopsy. And I remember just thinking, like, what an inconvenience. I have to go to Target. I only right. have two hours, you know, of child care. This right. is a total waste of time. And instead, that procedure revealed that, you know, I had breast cancer and here I was, you know, one day, you know, picking out colors to paint our nursery and, and the next day trying to understand the difference between a mastectomy and a lumpectomy. I didn't, you know, I didn't know anyone who had had cancer, none of my friends or family. Um, it was just, it was earth shattering.
1: Well, first of all, so your, your, your son was two? Yes. Your daughter. was Okay. Your son two was boys. two. Two boys. Two boys. Two boys. I'm a boy mom too. I love I love my boy. It's a special um, place. It really is. It takes <laughs> a lot of energy. So were you were you breastfeeding your first son at the time?
0: I had finished breastfeeding him finished breastfeeding. he was 2. So okay. but I did breastfeed him for over a year yeah. and had never had any discomfort or problems. I was actually like an excessive breastfeeder. I mean like I could have fed, <laughs> breastfed like 3 children. Yeah. Um I I don't know. I don't know if the hormones you know, and in that process of breastfeeding him for, you know, just like active, you know, process, if that, if that had any link. I mean, I, I, I had no idea. And, you
1: know, at the time certainly it wasn't – I was just like, wow, I'm good at this. Of course. <laughs> well, I was just asking because I was thinking of – you know, just when that happens, and, and I have not had breast cancer personally, but I know friends who have and who have breastfed. I mean, and whether you breastfeed or not, it's not, I'm not saying breastfeeding is better versus not. Like, I don't have an opinion on that. But my dear friend that did have breast cancer and had to have a mastectomy, she said that was part of the grief of this, like, mm. this breast that had given life you know to yeah. her children but you were 7 months pregnant with your second child about to start that process over again
0: yeah i mean it and it was a part of motherhood that i loved yeah. with my first child i mean i i savored that time where i just sat quietly and, and breastfed and yeah. obviously we processed a lot through that diagnosis and treatment but i can still like remember the day it occurred to me that i wasn't going to be able to breastfeed mm. and i had a huge amount of grief around that. And I remember telling my husband when we were at the hospital, like I wanted to be sure that no one walked into the room and started talking to me about breastfeeding or lactation consultant or just even like – like it needed to like from the moment Bennett was born, that just needed to be like off the table. Like it just wasn't because if it was a reminder that I couldn't, that was going to be so hard. And the crazy thing after having – Then like a rock star breastfeeding mom for my first child, I never, my milk didn't even come in with Bennett. I didn't have to, because I still had breasts at that time. Um, It never even happened, which was crazy. I mean, when I think about how that all just happened so naturally with Wills, my oldest, and how worried I was for that part of Bennett's birth experience it didn't even, my milk never came in. I never even, it was like literally like off the table, like introduce yeah. the bottle. And, and I was like, everybody can feed him, you know, and like looked yeah. at all the positives of yes. not being able to breastfeed. And I don't know how, but that just kind of became like literally was like a non-issue. And, yeah. um and I realized I could hold him with a bottle and have the same amazing connection and love. And, you know, he'd, put his hands on my face, just like my son did, you know, whether it was a boob or a bottle. So yeah. I'm glad that that piece of it didn't hurt as bad as I anticipated.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So can you take me through what happened? So you were diagnosed, you had the biopsy, they found that it was malignant. And then what was, what happened after that? They, they yeah. waited So because you I, were seven months pregnant? No, not oh, at all. No.
0: Um, I, of course I had like totally have no idea what is going to come in the next days. And we met with three different doctors, obviously getting, you know, multiple opinions. And everybody agreed that starting treatment was really important because I had an estrogen-positive cancer, which basically meant that my pregnancy was like feeding my cancer. So the heightened level of estrogen, all the hormones in my body, made it just a, a really dangerous situation. And so I was advised to have a mastectomy, And I just did not feel prepared to do that big of a surgery while I was pregnant. And so I talked to them about the idea of doing a lumpectomy to remove the tumor, recognizing it probably wasn't going to be successful, that I was going to need to have a mastectomy after I delivered. So we did a lumpectomy just like weeks after diagnosis and... As expected, did not get clear margins. I had a combination of a a small mass of a tumor, but I also had like finger like um, dcis cancer that was just kind of like pervasive throughout my breast tissue, so there was no way to really remove all of it with mm-hmm. just removing the tumor so I started chemotherapy and I had four rounds of chemo while I was pregnant and I can remember walking in to the oncologist's office for that first treatment. And I signed my name at the desk and the sweet lady told me I was on the wrong floor, that OB was, you know, two floors above. And I just looked at her and I was like, no, I'm in the right place. And, you know, just couldn't believe that here I was like leading this like excessively healthy life. You know, I was running, I was eating healthy. I was, you know, stopped drinking caffeine and like eating lunch meat, like any of the things that you could do to just make your pregnancy as healthy as possible. And the next move was going to be toxic chemicals pumped directly into my veins. And I got the IV and I just placed my hands on my belly and I felt our child kicking as I watched these this bright red toxic treatment flow into my veins and thinking, like, what on earth is happening right now? How, you know, how is this my reality? How did I end up here? And that was a really hard day to just start the process of accepting, you know, that this is what I needed to do. But all along I had amazing doctors and support and Really, everyone assuring me that Bennett was going to be okay because we found this cancer in my third trimester, which we were you know, grateful for because if you are diagnosed with cancer earlier in your pregnancy, it can be a completely different conversation because chemo kills rapidly dividing cells, ah. which is what a baby is. Yeah. So you have to either put off treatment, deliver the baby make a decision about continuing pregnancy I mean there it's it's mm. scary and and many many women are actually diagnosed while pregnant especially if they have a hormone sensitive cancer because the, the pregnancy brings out the you know accelerates the, the growth of the cancer so it's actually much more common than you would realize um, and it's certainly not something I realized but that every diagnosis and experience is unique. And, you know, each, each mother, you know, family works with their oncologist to figure out what's right for them. We were fortunate that the path was very clear, that I yeah. could have treatment, that Bennett was going to be okay. You know, he was going to be getting the same treatments that I was, but that they didn't anticipate him having any, you know, problems or side effects from that, that he might not have hair, he might have dry skin, you know, like some of the issues, but that his development wasn't going to be Impacted, so I had four rounds of chemo while I was pregnant. I lost my hair, and he was delivered full term. I tried to have an, a natural childbirth um, my first child I ended up having to have an emergency c section because my doula discovered that he was breech and just ended up needing to be a c section that's another story, right. but so I was planning to have you know a a, a v back I was going to have bennett, and unfortunately, after we got into the chemo process, I had to have him at a certain point in my treatment cycles when my counts were high. And so my or my OB, you know, was like, okay, you can, you know, this is your window. So I'm like running and walking and eating spicy foods and like doing all these things. Because I was like, surely in the midst of all this, I'm going to be able to deliver him. Like that is something I want to experience. And unfortunately that didn't happen. But again, like, you know, just like the breastfeeding, it was like, okay, this is going to, be okay. Um, What we need is a healthy baby. And um, so we delivered him full term, healthy baby boy. And the joke or the laughter that he brought in the middle of all this was he and I had this drug called adromycin Cytoxin, which is a bright red chemo drug. It's it's called the red devil. It is Uh Kool-Aid red. And he came out with bright red hair.
1: Oh my (laughs) gosh.
0: No joke. Like a rock star. Red hair. Nobody in my family has red hair. Like, I, never in my wildest dreams did I, like, picture a child in my life having red hair. I mean, yeah. my other child has blonde hair. My husband and I have brown hair. I mean, all of us were just like, what?
1: <laughs> What is wow. going on? Is he still is he still a redhead?
0: Flaming red hair. Aww. and it is the reminder. You know, daily we call him our little chemo baby, our little red devil. I mean, he is uh, lives up to the red hair and you know the whole personality. Um, he's a miracle. I mean, he. Yeah. I think, though the cancer. You know, I was diagnosed while I was pregnant with him, and the pregnancy probably caused the cancer to grow quickly. I also think he saved my life because I was 30. You know, I wasn't getting mammograms. I wouldn't have had a mammogram for 10 sure. years. Sure. And because I was, you know, working with an OB, you know, and going through all the pregnancy stuff, I was just more aware of my body and asking questions. And so I think that it brought it to my attention. And, um, you know, I choose to to look at it from that perspective. And he is now almost 12, And just healthy, rambunctious, you know, redheaded, you know, spitfire of a little boy. And um, no lasting impact of the
1: chemo or anything for him. Wow. That's incredible. So how did the journey continue for you after you gave birth to Bennett?
0: So I had to go back to chemo nine days later and start another drug that I wasn't able to have while I was pregnant called Taxol. And I had... um, about three months more of chemo. That drug actually made me really, really sick. And so I have a, you know, I have an infant at home, a, you know, two and a half year old, sick with chemo, just plowed through, you know, taking care of what I needed to to, to complete those treatments, um, surrounded by friends and family. And then I had a, a double mastectomy. Bennett was three months old. And I came home on Mother's Day unable to lift anything more than five pounds for six weeks. Um, you know, while I have a three-month-old and a, and a two-and-a-half-year-old that I'm trying to potty train. So I basically had to, you know, team parenting for yeah. a month of, you know, <clears throat> friends and family just helping surround us and and keep things as normal as
1: possible for our family. What right. um, well, was your husband? I mean, he probably had to go back to work.
0: Yeah. Oh, yeah. He worked full-time through all this. And it was – I mean, he was an amazingly supportive human being and did everything he could with, you know, cooking and taking care of the kids and and working and – you know, but it was a hard, hard time for our family. It was just – like living in this alternative reality, and yeah. I talk about that a lot with other women and, and men that I, I talk to. They're facing cancer. Is like you just feel like you live in this alternative reality. You feel terrible. Your choices that you're making are not choices that other people are, you know, trying to decide right. about. You are just getting through one day at a time while you live like this immense amount of fear of what is around the next corner. And we really lived in this alternative reality for about a year of just treatments, surgeries, side effects, you know, but trying to find joy and laughter and make our home as normal as possible. You know, we have this like infant that's just amazing. We have two and a half year old that is, you know, just funny and, you know, keeping us on our toes. And and we just tried to live as normal as possible. And, And we really, you know, we're so grounded in this hope that we were going to persevere. We, yeah. My husband and I are very um, determined, you know. People, we're like put a plan in place, figure it out, solve the problem. We're a team; we can do this, you know, all of that. And yeah. we did. I mean, we came out of it on the other side, you know, with the help of you know counseling and talking and yeah. processing all our feelings. We made it through that yeah. year, and um, wow. it was hard.
1: And when did the The scarves come in, and this is such a beautiful organization. I'm so excited, and this episode's actually going to air in January 2020, so it will already be the new year. But um, December, I I am highlighting it on the show, and I'm just I think it's so amazing what you started with this. But can you tell me the story of how this originated?
0: Yes. So our listeners, shortly after I was diagnosed, a box arrived in the mail from a friend of a friend named Kelly. And in it was a whole bunch of these beautiful, colorful scarves and a note that said, you can do this. And in the midst of everything that I was going through, um, oh, we were also renovating a house. At the, oh, all this. stop so it. Are oh, you yeah, kidding me? 100% living in oh. a re- at this snacky rental house oh. while I was like renovating this historic home. And I, I joke, like one day I was trying to determine like different finishes on my kitchen cabinets. And the next day I was looking at like diagrams of like mastectomies and different types of reconstruction. And, um, but it was, the house was actually like this great creative outlet for me through right. all of it because I loved the process. And so of course I hadn't given a second thought to Losing my hair. So I had, I didn't have a wig, I didn't have a scarf, I, didn't have, I hadn't even like thought about that piece of this whole process. And so this box arrives, and I was just so touched not only that these scarves were really practical and I could wear them, but that this young woman had faced cancer, taken the time to encourage me, and it just helped me believe, well, I'm, I can do this too. She did this, I can do this. And so yeah. I wore Kelly's scarves throughout my treatment. And after I Every time I put those scarves on, I felt her love and strength. I felt like they Mm -hmm. carry these extra superpowers that I was not in this alone. She had faced cancer. I could too. And I wore her scarves throughout my treatment. I never actually wore a wig. I just felt more comfortable in scarves. So I collected this like beautiful collection of scarves over that course of the year. And when I finished treatment and my... Stubble started growing back in my head. I asked Kelly for her address, you know, so I could send them back to her. And she said, just find somebody who could use them. And so I took the scarves to a conference with the Young Survival Coalition and I sought out somebody I thought I could give them to. And I found a woman named Roberta who was just starting treatment. And I brought the scarves to her in the lobby of the hotel and I told her, My story and I told her about Kelly and I passed those scarves on to her and we laughed through our tears about, you know, being a young mom and how to tie the scarf and just, you know, what she was facing and what I had faced. And I realized in that moment that I – encourage her and pass along my strength and my love to her, and how much those scarves meant not only in receiving them when I was newly diagnosed and I needed that love and support, but that in passing them on, I was able to reflect and process and grieve and heal in telling my story to her and giving the scarves to Roberta. And that day, I I started talking about this idea of an organization and a movement where we could work with people to collect their scarves and stories and pass them on to others in treatment. And Hope Scarves was born from that simple exchange of receiving them and passing them on and started a nonprofit organization in my spare bedroom of my house, created our website, hopescarves.org, wrote a business plan and a mission statement and helped build the logistics of how this would all work. And Fast forward eight years, we have now become an international nonprofit organization. We've sent over 13,000 hope scarves to every state, 24 countries. The oldest recipient is 97 and the youngest is two. And we support people facing all different types of cancer. And um, with that simple idea of sharing your story, encouraging someone else, and providing this practical and inspiring connection of Support when you're facing cancer.
1: So beautiful, and and something I just wanted to touch on. I didn't want to interrupt your flow, but was that you said you did this in your spare bedroom of of probably the newly renovated house? I'm guessing. I
0: actually had since moved. That was another terrible part of the story. This was all happening in 2008 during the recession, and so my husband actually was transferred. We were living in Alabama at the time, so we had gone through cancer treatment, renovated this beautiful historic home, a year later moved to Louisville, Kentucky, and that's where I started Hope Scarves. So I I actually was kind of like this, you know, we've got all the things that we went through in that year between the cancer and the building the house and then the move. It was kind of like this fresh start, and I was like... I'm yeah. gonna do this. I'm gonna start this organization. But you so. had two
1: toddlers, is what I, I was t- gonna get
0: at. Like you oh, had, yeah, two I also had two toddlers.
1: You were yes. still recovering from all of your cancer treatment, and you're just like, no, I'm gonna do this massive thing. It's just so inspiring that that you this, the inspiration carried you through it because i I'm, I'm sure you retired af. Yeah. <laughs> you know. You know what I mean? Like Oh yeah, for sure. But you were driven by this this need to create this beautiful thing of this beautiful, you know, web of support for, for people facing this as you did. So I think that's just so so commendable, so amazing. And I love the organization. I love what you guys are doing. Yeah. And so several years later, I can't remember the timeline because I watched the video, but something else happened. Right. So, you know,
0: starting Hope Scarves was, like, my way of turning this scary, devastating experience into something beautiful. Like, I didn't want cancer to have the last word, and it being this thing that, you know, had brought me pain and side effects and mental health issues and, you know, all of that. I was like, I'm I'm regaining control here, and I'm going to do that by turning heartbreak into hope, and Hope Scarves was my way of of doing that. And in the same regard, every time someone shares their scarf and their story— They too can turn heartbreak into hope. And that's just what we do day in and day out. And I was, it was beautiful. We had created this amazing organization. Um, moved into our out of my spare bedroom and into office space, hired staff, um, successful fundraising, just built a following that was so beautiful. And it was a creative outlet, a professional outlet for me. Um, and I was running. I, I'm a runner, I was doing a lot of trail running. I had developed some low back pain that I assumed was just connected to my running and working a lot and sitting at a computer, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, I went and got an MRI. And the MRI revealed it wasn't just a running injury. I actually had a, an orange sized tumor in my sacrum, which a biopsy revealed was breast cancer. So, metastatic breast cancer. Right. And um, I think I, like many other people, and probably some of your listeners, didn't really understand the scope of breast cancer and that is that stages one through three breast cancer that's contained to your breast is treatable and survivable and that if it never recurs in other places in your body you can live a long 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 time 20 30 40 years When breast cancer metastasizes, which means it spreads to other parts of your body, typically your bones, your lung, your liver, your brain, that's when it becomes metastatic breast cancer, stage four. That is when people die of breast cancer. Metastatic breast cancer is the stage of breast cancer that is terminal. The average life expectancy of metastatic breast cancer is two to three years. Right now, it's the leading cause of cancer death for women under the age of 50.
1: Mm. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Yeah. So I really, like I think thousands of other people thought no breasts, no breast cancer. Right. You know, I had taken this extreme measure of having this mastectomy, a year of chemotherapy. Um, I knew about metastatic breast cancer. I knew about stage four breast cancer, but I didn't want to really understand it because I just was putting cancer behind me. I had done all these treatments, I'd faced this, you know, while being pregnant, you know, my story was going to be one of survivorship and I'd built this amazing organization telling all these hopeful, happy, you know, stories of survivorship. And here I am just like slammed in the face with this terminal cancer diagnosis at the age of 37. So seven years after my original diagnosis. And, um, set in motion the same process of you know what i faced the first time of you know doctors appointments and understanding what was happening but very different than an early stage diagnosis is there's not a clear path mm. when you're diagnosed stage 1 through 3 there's like Basically, like a welcome basket of like, Mm. welcome, you know, breast cancer. This is what you're going to do. You're going to have to do chemotherapy and radiation and surgeries. And like, this is the plan, and you'll be done in X number of, you know, treatments. With metastatic breast cancer, there isn't enough treatment options to ultimately save your life. I mean, that's why people. Die, mm-hmm. um, and you don't know where you're going to fall in the continuum. I have friends who've been diagnosed with metastatic disease that died six months after their diagnosis. I have friends that have lived 18 years, mm-hmm. and that really is many different types of metastatic disease depending on if it's hormone, you know, sensitive. You know, where it reoccurs in your body, how many spots there are. Um, so you just set on down this path of finding a treatment option that works for you and hoping that it can work and hold your cancer stable as long as possible. And so for me, that meant removing my ovaries because I, again, you have this estrogen-positive cancer, so putting myself in permanent menopause, removing my ovaries, and starting endocrine therapy, to continue to disrupt the estrogen that was feeding the cancer. And then also um, radiation treatment on that spot where the, the tumor was to shrink the tumor and relieve the pain I was feeling. Mm. Um, but it it really, you know, hit me and our organization to realize that for many people, cancer isn't a one-and-done kind of gig. That actually with breast cancer in particular, an estrogen sensitive breast cancer the arc of reoccurrence can be 5 10 15 20 years after the original diagnosis that so many of us shoot for this like 5 year mark which actually isn't as significant as i think many of us are led to believe that you know i was 5 years cancer free it came back at 7 you know right. it it wasn't anything i did it was not a result of any lack of treatment or anything I ate or, you know, didn't do or, you know, any of that kind of stuff, I think it's honestly like such a crapshoot. I mean, for people that have the exact same treatment option as me that never reoccur and that mine comes back in my bones seven years later, it's a tremendous void of understanding of metastatic breast cancer Mm. and research of understanding the mechanisms of metastatic disease and, and... why cancer spreads and, and all of that, which we can get into about um, the importance of research. But, um, you know, it really caused me and our organization to look really hard at what we were doing and recognize that, you know, I was never going to beat cancer. And and um, in the sense of like that defining like hope, I think we, like so many other people were like focused on this survivorship um, culture, this like idea of like triumph over cancer that all of a sudden I felt so weak and like I was never going to be triumphant if that was only available to people who beat cancer. And so I went into a really dark place of, you know, obviously my children are at this point, Bennett was six turning seven um, and Wills was in fourth grade. And, um, you know, I just, I couldn't even look at my children like to, for fear of like the sadness that I would bring someday Mm. to, you know, that they would lose their mom. I mean, I was, it was, it was so much, it was, it was so overwhelming to face that diagnosis.
1: Yeah. I can't even imagine. I mean, especially after all that you'd already been through and that idea of like you say, you know you your story was that you were triumphant, you had you'd gotten to the remission stage, and I think that is that false, you know but 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 at the same time, like people who have faced what you've faced or different versions of it need that hope to hold on to, like I'm gonna get to that point, you know, mm-hmm. but then to be faced with this, so um, I wanted to ask you, how did you guide your boys through this? How did you and your husband? Speak to them about it at at this second learning. Um,
0: We had a a lot of help talking Mm -hmm. to different people and the right Mm -hmm. language. And I think what we decided for us was that we wanted to be really open and honest with them. But we also wanted to use language that was age appropriate. So, you know, children at that age aren't sure how to, like, frame, like, the unknown. I mean, we couldn't frame it in, as adults, like, but let right. alone for them. And so we talked about the cancer, that the cancer had returned, that it was in my bones. I showed them what a sacrum was. You know, we mm-hmm. talked about like it in like very scientific, like actual terms, like this is where the cancer is and this is what radiation is, you know, ra- you know what we're doing. And then... um we talked about that we we're going to try to just stop it from growing and then I to I'm going to take some you know medicine and and you know do things to try to be as healthy as possible and see if we can stop it from growing and we were so very very fortunate because my first line treatment did stop it from growing it worked i mean so that was an incredible relief but they saw me facing the hurt of the diagnosis and the worry and the fear and the unknown and we had i had to as you know as their mom realize that i couldn't place my hope in beating this disease but yet i felt so helpless that i couldn't like i was so vulnerable and like i didn't feel safety i felt just open and exposed and vulnerable and and like, I couldn't find safety because safety was in the remission. Safety was in there not being any cancer. But I had to learn and model for them that we found safety in the present, Mm. that we found safety and love and strength in not in the perceived future or in the hope that the cancer never comes back, but that in today, there's no evidence of disease. Yeah. And even if there was disease, and I, when I did experience progression, that we didn't allow ourselves to get caught up in all the unknowns and the what ifs and the f- fear of the future, but that we really grounded ourselves in living life over cancer. Mm. Not beating cancer in the sense of like being cancer free or, you know, being victorious in the like fight being over, but that day in and day out, maybe hour by hour, maybe minute by minute, we would live life over cancer. Mm. And that we would do that by finding joy and being intentional about how we made choices with how we spent our time and laughing and loving each other and being vulnerable, not as a sign of weakness, but as a sign of courage yeah. and that we all did that together in in many ways. And, um, you know, there were lots and lots of hard, there are still lots and lots of hard days and angry days and sad days. And, um, it's a, it's an ongoing process of living in, in this way. Um, but I choose to not, just as I didn't want cancer to define me in my early stage diagnosis and in such created hope scarves as a way to, you know, turn that heartbreak into hope. I choose that every day now mm. in how I live and how I parent and how I, I choose to spend my time um, because I don't know what is around the corner, but I don't live in that perceived future. I choose mm. to live
1: intentionally in each day. What, I mean, what a gift for your boys, like what, what a gift for any parent to give to their children, really, you know, but to have to face this tremendous hardship and you said it so beautifully, like, and and I was thinking this as you were talking, like what, what a profound lesson in how courage and vulnerability actually exist in the same space within this and and Mm -hmm. how you're teaching them. To live and embrace the now. And, and there's there's freedom in that.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think that I, I, I feel so often that I am fully broken and whole at the same time. Like right now, I'm fortunate that my treatments are, I have had progression, but I am again at a point of stability, I hope. And so I can go out for a run and I can feel the strength in my legs and my heart pounding and just like feel so strong and grateful and be running and then realize I have terminal cancer pulsing through my body right now. Which one am I going to feed? Am I going to feed the strength and the hope and the determination or am I going to feed the fear and the worry and the scared, but that I'm both at the same time? And I can find myself like running and just feeling like fully alive and, you know, Running in the tr- in a trail run and stop and crumple to the ground in tears,
1: mm.
0: fully broken and fully whole in the mm. same in the same run. I mean, in the same day, in the same. It is it is not one or the other for me. It, it, they are intertwined, yeah. and I think that was what my, was kind of one of my biggest moments of, of finding my path was that my early stage diagnosis was all about like getting to the end, like. Finding hope and joy in the completion of the treatment and that th- those were separate. There was the treatment and then there was the joy and, mm. the, you know, the life after cancer. And I can't live that way now. I will never be done with treatment. I will be in treatment the rest of my life. So I have to find a way to intertwine the pain and the joy. And, mm. the, you know, they are mutually exclusive in my life. And I have to be intentional about which one's... I feed. And that's not to say that I don't get angry and get mad and get sad. I mean, I allow those emotions. I have those emotions absolutely every day. Yeah. But if I choose to stay in that world, it's a horrible downward spiral for me and for my family. And I don't know how much time I have left. Um, I don't, I don't want to live it being depressed and sad. And, and one of my dear friends who um, was one of the first women I met with metastatic disease after I was diagnosed And we were at a cocktail party and she took both my hands in hers and she looked me in the eye and she said, if you have five minutes to live, do you want to spend one second being sad? And I, you know, and I was like, well, probably, I would probably spend a couple seconds being sad. (laughs) I mean, in all honesty, but I get what you're saying. Like you have this finite amount of time and you have power to choose. I mean, what a gift I get to try my hardest to live in joy. And Marianne died a couple years later, but she lived, she lived and she laughed and she, she lived those two years. Mm. And, um, I want to do the
1: same. Yeah. Well, you're doing it so beautifully and so courageously. I am so inspired by you. Oh, and I'm so you. grateful we had this time together
0: oh well thank you You're it is it is such a power to me to share my story and to help others consider you know yeah. making those same choices in their life you don't have to face cancer or a terminal diagnosis to you know try to live in those same ways it's just yeah. that when you when you do like me it just becomes a necessity
1: yeah. Well, so I usually close every episode out by asking um, my guests the same three questions and then a fun lightning round of questions. Are you ready? Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) What do you think about, Laura, when you hear the word love? Family. Mm. If you could live anywhere in the world other than where you're living now, where would you live?
0: Michigan. Michigan. (laughs)
1: Oh, <laughs> that's where, that's I where grew you're at. Yeah. That's where I are at. Yeah. How do you define serenity? Mm. Question.
0: Um, acceptance mm. and letting go of
1: things you can't control. Mm. Okay. Lightning round of questions. Uh, fireside or oceanside? Oceanside. Favorite junk food?
0: Dark chocolate.
1: Ooh. Do you like theme parks? No. (laughs) (laughs) Everyone answers the same for that one. Um, Shower or bathtub? Bathtub. On a scale of one to 10, how good are you at making lasagna?
0: Not good. (laughs) Does that involve stopping at lots of pasta and picking it up and putting it in the oven? Then I'm a (laughs) 10. We'll give it to you. We'll give you the time.
1: What's your biggest pet peeve? Um, oh, what is my biggest pet peeve? Mm,
0: hmm gosh. I didn't think about that. I should just like what came to my head was um people who. Say I instead of we when it's like a group effort. So, like, mm. ownership, like, I don't know. Like, I guess that would be like, I don't, I'm always like a we, I'm like a we person. So, like, if we right. talk about like efforts like on a committee or like here at Hope Scarves, like, I'm always like, we, we, we. And if like mine or I, yeah. I'm like, nope, it's not, you know, it's we, I guess. Yeah.
1: That's kind yeah. of, I guess that'd be my pet peeve. Okay. Superpower choice invisibility, ability to fly, or super strength? Hmm. I think ability to fly. Okay. Uh, would you rather have a cat tail or cat ears <laughs> if you had to make a choice? <laughs> um, ears. <laughs> what was the name of your first pet? Critter. What was the name of the street you grew up on? Oh, I know where you're going with this. Um, <laughs> Sophia. Ooh. So your your porn name, because this is MILF Podcast, yes. is Critter Sophia. Oh, that sounds good. Doesn't it? That's a good one. I love it. Oh, my gosh. Laura, thank you so much for being on the show. You are a delight and an inspiration.
0: Well, thank you for helping share our
1: story. Of course. Of course. Thanks so much for listening, guys. I really hope you enjoyed my conversation with Lara. Please join me next week for a fresh episode of MILF Podcast. And remember to go to soulcoo.com and check out their beautiful, beautiful gemstone necklaces and earrings and bracelets and use your code of MILF15 and go to thisisloom.com uh, or come on out and visit their location here in Los Angeles and use the code of... MILF20 to get your discount. I love you guys. Keep going. Happy, happy new year. Keep riding that new year train.